The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org forward slash university. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 47th and 16th in Seattle's U District. Hey, it's good to be with you tonight. We're, we're actually ready. We were in the back. We were just yeah. were in the back. They put a couch back there. Talking about Song of Songs. I'm not so sure there should be couches when we're reading a Song of Songs, so I don't know about that. Instead, I think we better be at the prayer station back there praying. You know, um... Some people are looking at us like, what? Who are these people? They're old. You want to pass their bedtime? Uh, you know, Mike and I went to the... We were kind of periphery indoors when we were college students, and we kind of sat in the back and... Didn't want to blend in too much. I think most of the time we were convicted about what we were doing the night before when we came. And um, I just want to say, anytime you do something like the Song of Songs or a series on romance, or there's such mixed reactions about that. Some people are like, "Yes, this is exactly what I want to hear," and there's other people are like, "This is the last thing that I want to hear." And and so as we share with you tonight, we're mindful of that. And we know that some of you are listening with eager ears. For some of you, our message is one for you today. For some of you, it's a message for you for later. For some of you, it's a message because you're surrounded by friends and roommates that are making really important decisions about their romance life and their sex life. And and you're supposed to know something to be able to speak into their lives. So no matter where you are, there's something in here that's for you, whether it's for now or for later for someone else. Yeah, you said something about your two core group people. Oh, yeah. I was talking about uh, two different... I've led a million core groups in my lifetime, but um, kind of many things happen in core groups. Well, we'll be doing a series like this on the end, and I'll get to my core group, and they'll go, oh, my gosh, like, this is not for me. Like, I'm the only person in my group that doesn't even have a boyfriend, and I'm the last person in the world that needs to hear this message. And in both instances recently where I've had those girls, those two girls were the first ones to get married, I tell you. So you just never know. It's never crazy. Know. So, hey, we have some advice from you. We, uh, you know, we want to only bring out the best uh, stuff. You know, we want to make sure that we're, our teaching is good. And so we have some instruction and advice for a young bride. I know some of you are thinking, Mike, I'm not going to get married until I'm 33. That's okay. Just take notes on this. This is all you'll need. My daughters aren't getting married. They're not getting married. So, um, no. So, I'm, I'm working on them. They're reading books. I grew up Catholic, so they're reading lots of books about, you know, being nuns, and we're trying to bring that back. But, anyway, so. I, I keep telling Mike it's the only way he's getting men in the family. He's got these three girls. That's true. It's my only hope there. But, you know what? I want to. Do we have the uh, slide? Let, let, I want to put the first one up here. Okay. Now, let, just so you can. We put this up there because sometimes when we've read this in the past, people got a little bit lost. Like, what are they really reading? Wait, this is an instruction advice for the young bride on the conduct and procedure of the intimate and personal relationships of the marriage state for the greater spiritual sanctity of this blessed sacrament and the glory of God by Ruth Smithers. Doesn't that just kind of sound like a church lady's name? Um, <laughs> This is the beloved wife of the Reverend L.D. Smithers, pastor of the Arcadian Methodist Church of the Eastern Regional Conference, published in the year of our Lord, 1894. Spiritual Guidance Press, New York. Listen, ladies. Okay. Advice for you. Okay. Listen. 
To the sensitive young woman who has had the benefits of proper upbringing, the wedding day is, ironically, both the happiest and most terrifying day of her life. On the positive side, there is the wedding itself, when the bride gets to be the central attraction and in a beautiful, inspiring ceremony, symbolizing her triumph in securing a male to provide for her needs for the rest of her life. Congratulations. On the negative side, there is the wedding night, during which the bride must pay the piper, so to speak, by facing for the first time the terrible experience of sex. The vice goes on. Now, at this point, dear reader, let me concede one shocking truth. Some young women actually anticipate the wedding night ordeal with curiosity and pleasure. Beware of such an attitude. A selfish and sensual husband can easily take advantage of such a bride. One cardinal rule of marriage should never be forgotten, women. Give little, give seldom, and above all, give grudgingly. Otherwise, what, what could have been a proper marriage could become an orgy of sexual lust. On the other hand, the bride's terror need not be extreme. While sex is at best revolting <laughs> and at worst rather painful, it has been endured and been has been endured and has been by women since the beginning of time and is compensated for the monogamous home and by the children produced through it. It is useless in most cases for the bride to prevail upon the groom to forego sexual initiation, while the ideal husband would be one who would approach his bride only at her request and only for the purpose of begetting offspring. Such nobility and selfishness cannot be expected from the average man. And think about the not-so-average guy, you know. Now, most men, if not denied, would demand sex almost every day. The wise bride will permit a maximum of two brief sexual experiences weekly during the first months of marriage. As time goes by, she should make every effort to reduce this frequency. Okay, frayed illness, sleepiness, and headaches are among the wife's best friends in this matter. Arguments, nagging, scolding, and bickering also prove very effective. If used in the late evening, about an hour before the husband would normally commence his seduction. Clever wives, like myself, are ever on the alert for new and better methods of denying and discouraging the amorous overtures of the husband. A good wife should expect to have reduced sexual contacts to once a week by the end of the first year of marriage, once a month by the end of the fifth year, and by the tenth anniversary, many wives have managed to complete their childbearing and have achieved the ultimate goal of terminating all sexual contacts with the husband. So you guys are here listening to us because after 23 years... Um, she has not achieved the goal. So, <laughs> too much information. Oh, right? applause. Thank yes. you for applauding. Some people caught that. Let me. There's like two more pages of instructions. We won't weigh you down with the rest of it, but we want to read the last paragraph, and it says this: One heartening factor for which the wife can be grateful is the fact that the husband's home, the husband's school, church and social environment have been working together all throughout his life to instill in him a deep sense of guilt in regards to his sexual feelings so that he comes to the marriage couch 
apologetically and filled with shame, already half cowed and subdued. The wise wife seizes upon this advantage and relentlessly pursues her goal first to limit, later to annihilate completely her husband's desire for sexual expression. Now, we share that with you because that was really taught in the church. And it's the reason why we stood up here last week and we pointed out to you that there in the middle of this story of God's redemption, of God's story of redeeming humankind, His love story in the lives of people, right in the middle, you put your finger right in it, there is a collection of love poems. Erotic, sensual, romantic poetry between a husband and a wife that celebrates sexuality. The gift that God gave us in the beginning when He said a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And Adam proclaims, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The excitement and enthusiasm that God intended when he created and gave us this incredible, wonderful gift to be celebrated. And we stood up here last week to point out to you that these, this collection of poetry stands, first of all, here as a means to communicate to us that we are called to celebrate this incredible gift that God has given us. Now, when I mentioned that, Song of Songs, there's also the reality that I told you that this, this poetry is really... You've got to keep in mind a couple of things about this book. It's important. Or this collection of poems. Is it's just that. There's not necessarily a beginning and end. Some people have taught what's called the dramatic or narrative approach to this book. Like there's a beginning and then they date for a while. They get engaged and they, they go through. Then they get married and then they have their first sexual encounter about chapter 5. If you read chapter 1, <laughs> like they were obviously having sex then so um, if you read it hopefully you went home and read it and then there's kind of this you know it ends and they kind of ride off in the sunset and live happily ever after that's not what the Song of Songs is okay it's a collection of what they call discreetly written poems that have an overarching unity their themes tie it together I mentioned last week that it's called an anthology it's probably better translated to you and I as a sitcom it's like watching a sitcom where there's not necessarily a beginning and an end per se in a, a series of sitcoms uh, but what you would see is if you pulled them together each one would stand on its own but they would have common character common themes and common phrases or refrains that would occur and so that's what we get in here and overarching this whole thing is the celebration of sexual love that God has given to us. However, we also talked last week about there being rocks in the garden. So even in a place as amazing as a um, uh, place reminiscent of the Garden of Eden, uh, there's still rocks in the garden, and that's chaos that enters into um, their romantic life, into our romantic lives as well. And there's upheaval, and, and we read about times where she's wanting him, and he wants her, but he can't. She can't find him, and then she comes to. He comes over, and she doesn't want to get up. And this whole chaotic thing about misconnections and and chaos. And we know that that's true in our romantic lives. And then tonight we'll see a third theme emerge, and that's a warning. So with that, we're going to dive right we're in. We're going to dive in, and as we do, we want you to keep in mind that we're going to talk about the warning tonight. But keep in mind the themes that emerge throughout. That this is a celebration of a gift that God has given us, and yet there's warning that's to be had. Chapter 2. We have it? Good, sure. I'm just a wildflower picked from the plains of Sharon, a lotus blossom from the valley pools. Ah, a lotus blossoming in the swamp of weeds. That's my dear friend among the girls in the village. 
As an apricot tree stands out in the forest, my lover stands among the men in town. All I want is to sit in his shade, to taste the savor of his delicious love. He took me home with him for a festive meal, but his eyes feasted on me. Oh, give me something refreshing to eat, and quickly, apricots, raisins, anything. I'm about to faint with love. His left hand cradles my head, and right, his, right arm, his right arm encircles my waist. Oh, let me warn you, O oh sisters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles, yes, by the wild deer, don't excite love, don't stir it up until the time is ripe and until you're ready. Look, listen, here's my lover. Do you see him vaulting the mountains, leaping the hills? My lover's like a gazelle, graceful, like a young stag, viral. Look at him there on tiptoe at the gate, all ears, all eyes, and ready. My lover has arrived and he's speaking to me. Get up, my dear friend, fair and beautiful lover. Come to me. Look around you. Winter is over. The winter rains are over, gone. Spring flowers are in blossom all over. The whole world's a choir and singing. Spring wobblers are filling the forest with sweet erpagios. Lilacs are exuberantly purple and perfumed and cherry trees fragrant with blossoms. Oh, get up, my dear, my fair and beautiful lover. Come to me. Come, my shy and modest love, leave your seclusion, come out in the open, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is soothing and your face is ravishing. Then you must protect me from the foxes, foxes on the prowl, foxes who would like nothing better than to get into our flowering garden. My lover is mine and I am his. Nightly he strolls in our garden, delighting in flowers until dawn breathes its light and night slips away. Turn to me, dear lover, come like a gazelle, leap like a wild stag on a delectable mountains. Restless in my bed and sleepless through the night, I longed for my lover. I wanted him desperately. His absence was painful, so I got up and went out and roved the city, hunting through the streets and down the alleys. I wanted my lover in the worst way. I looked high and low, but I didn't find him. And then the night watchman found me. Have you seen my lost dear love, I asked? No sooner I had left them than... Left them, then I found him, found my dear lost love. I threw my arms around him and held him tight. Wouldn't let him go until I had him home again, safe at home beside the fire. Oh, let me warn you, sisters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles, yes, by all the wild deer, don't excite love, don't stir it up until the time is right and you're ready. Going into tonight, we knew we had one of two ways we could go with this. And um, we knew that one thing we could do is we could spend a lot of time on uh, this warning and telling you scripture and scripture, kind of beat, browbeat you with scriptures all through scripture of what God says to you about sex and the boundaries of sex. Because there are some. And that's really important for us to know. And so we put those on a handout for people who want, who don't, don't feel like they have a very good grasp of what God has to say about sex. And you can take those back home. You can take them to your small groups and your core groups and discuss those. We also had Becky put them on the, the website for you. But tonight we decided instead of doing that, we, we wanted to spend less time on that and more time on saying, why would God say this? Why this warning to the daughters of Jerusalem not to arouse love or awaken it, not to stir it up until it's ready? Why would that be the case? Well, we can say that um, we've done a lot of Bible study over the 28 years that we've been Christians. And um, we'll summarize for you what we have come to um, learn from our Bible study on this topic. 
The Bible clearly teaches that the only sexual union that God blesses is that which occurs between a man and a woman who have made a public commitment to one another for life. And um, for some of you, that might feel like very gray. For us, when we were sitting in this room, it felt gray, and we wanted it to be gray. And if I were in your shoes, I'd probably pick up the paper as I was going out just to look for the loopholes. You know, because I shared last week that we got involved really young. We were having sex really early, and that's not something that we really wanted to give up. So I would have been searching, looking for loopholes, and we've been looking for loopholes for a long time, and we haven't found any. And that's, that's the truth of it, is that that's where God blesses sex, in the confines of marriage. But with that, we're going to go on and talk about why God would do that. Why would he put these um, boundaries upon us? And, um, you know, for us, I think it wasn't just knowing, having the head knowledge. What does scripture say? How did that become heart knowledge? How did that transform our lives? How, you know, how did that really occur? And how did we become thinking really differently about sex. Yeah, because one of the things, if you were here last week and if you weren't, we had told our story that Sherry had mentioned that one of the things that, um, uh, that if you had asked us, did, did we wait to have sex till we got married, we would say? Yes. And if you said, did you have sex before marriage, you would say? Yes. Because we did both. Um, we were sexually active until um, the end of our freshman or sophomore year in college. Uh, and then we stopped for two and a half years until our wedding day. And so we'd experienced both what it meant to wait and what it was like to, to, to have this before in our life. I told you last week that a friend of mine uh, talked to me at one point in time about this. And he shared all these Bible verses that we put on paper. He shared all these Bible verses to explain what God says about sex. And he pointed out that God wants us to celebrate it, but to celebrate it in the confines of marriage. In this union that God blesses, where a man and woman commit each other uh, to one another uh, for life. And so, but for me, it was like, wow. So I had all these scriptures, and the guy showed me all this stuff, and I could go home and memorize it. But it had to go from here to the heart. There's two things that we want to talk about tonight that I think will help maybe give you a perspective. In other words, if we were at a youth group, maybe we'd just quote a bunch of Bible verses to you. But we're not, because we don't want to quote a bunch of Bible verses. We want to tell you why we think God said, wait. Why this poetry would say, don't awaken till the time is right. Why? And the first thing has to do with this, is sex is very powerful, and it longs to take center stage early on in a relationship. Sex is very powerful, and it longs to take center stage in a relationship. See, the problem we have in our culture is there, there's, there's two things going on. We re, I read earlier about what the church has often said. The church has often told us to suppress our sexual desires. So you don't do it, and anybody that wants to do it, there's something wrong with you. Now, I'm not going to explain. This ties back to Gnosticism and a whole bunch of other stuff. But there's a suppression of it. But what happened is that the, all of a sudden there was this kind of liberty that broke free in our culture. And so where the church kind of tells us to suppress our sexuality, the culture comes around and says, all the freedom and expression you want. You should have sex, have sex whenever you want. If it feels good, do it. And so all of a sudden we began to live with this other reality in our culture that said, you know, kind of the other side of things. Take all the license and freedom you want. But what people didn't catch on to is that sex is very powerful and it wants to take center stage of your life. It's such an incredibly powerful gift that God gave us that it wants to take center stage in our life and relationship. There's a guy named Lewis Smeeds. And as a matter of fact, one of the books that I recommend you read 
has an awful title, but it's a great book. The title of the book is Sex for Christians. And it's written in really big letters, letters, you know. (laughs) Remember when I I was taking it for a class, I took it. My last seminary class I took was on the Song of Songs. I I was taught by one one of the best guys in this book, a guy named Trumper Longman. It was one of the books required us to read, but we were taking the class down to Pasadena and we're staying at kind of this nice place with a pool and stuff. While I was ta- so I'd come home in the afternoon and sit by the pool and read this book, uh, Sex for Christians, you know, <laughs> as if there's sex for others. I mean, I don't understand <laughs> if it's different. But anyway, Sex for Christians, Lewis Smith, one of the things that he says is this, and I just find this fascinating, he's saying, listen to this. As a matter of fact, hold on to this, because what I'm going to kind of lead into right now, I think has meaning for everything in our lives, okay? Everything. I think, to me, it's the core. What he says, he said this, he said, he started talking about what it means to have an idol. Most of us, when we think of idols, we think of Old Testament, we think of like wood and golden statues, and some little statue of some little god that people bow down to. But Lewis Mead says this, an, an idol is this. He says, an idol is whenever we slice off a piece of created reality and expect a miracle from it. Whenever we slice off a piece of created reality and expect it to do something for us that ultimately it just cannot do. So take marriage, for example, or romance specifically. You might say, man, if only I would find a gal, my life would be fulfilled. If only I'd get the right job, my life would be fulfilled. If only my grades were such and such, then, or if only I looked a certain way, there's a whole bunch of things that we slice off of created reality, and we expect it to do something for us that it was never created and intended to do. And that's what sex does. See, sex becomes a powerful thing in a relationship, especially early on, and it wants to take center stage. It gets set up as an idol. And we begin to think in a relationship that somehow, either by having it or resisting it, that somehow there's a, there's a miracle in it. I know a lot of miserable Christians who aren't having sex. And I know a lot of people that are having sex and are miserable as well. See, it wants to take center stage in our life. I want to show you a little... Do we have time or we don't have time? We don't have time. we have time? Let me show you something. Let me try to do this. Okay. I need somebody that would play God. Um, is Ryan Church here? Ryan? <laughs> Come here, Ryan. I need you to play God. Come here. Okay, Ryan. By the way, I just, as Ryan's coming up, I just, you know, Sherry and I are in gratitude. Not everybody gives up their pulpit to somebody else. So thanks, man, for letting us come up God. here. God. Okay, I, I need uh, anybody in here engaged and with their engaged significant for anybody dating. Any people dating? Yeah. No, but you got to be with your significant other. Okay. No. You guys know each other? Yeah. All right. Come on. You're out of the way. Do you know each other? Do you know each other? You're Adam and Eve. Okay. Okay. Come on up here. Okay. You're Adam and Eve. Now, by the way, what I'm doing is I'm setting up. I'm, I'm setting. I'm setting up the scene in Genesis one and Genesis two. The first parts of the Bible. So technically you're naked. Okay, so we want to live this out. Well, yeah, yeah, something like that. Okay, so. Okay, now, what I, now, now you guys track with me for a minute. Ryan, you need to step over here because we ought to do this right. Okay, you're God. Okay, and then you guys come here. Now, you guys face God. Ryan, you can face them. Okay, this is what happened in creation. There's God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Ryan, okay. All of it. Creates Adam and Eve, they're naked, unashamed in the garden, right? Right? Okay? Then, then, um, 
Who, you know, who loves nature? Who's like a nature? Janie's around here. Any nature freaks around here? Come on up here. Come on, environmental girl. Come on. You get to be nature. Okay, God created the animals, the trees, the fruit, the, everything. And just nature. Okay, we're just all the things we read about out there. Okay, who, who's a work, who just works hard? Not your interns, I'm sure, Ryan, but who works hard? Come on. Your work, all right? Now, the reason why I say this is a lot of us want to think that work didn't enter into the picture until sin entered the picture. Sorry, we worked in the garden, okay? Now, um, money. Now, I know money really wasn't created, but resources, you know, that people exchange. That's a, who likes to be money? Come on, get up here and be money. Come on. Don't worry, I'm not going to make you do anything, okay? So because we have Adam and Eve, we actually have to say that there's marriage and sex because this was created by God, so in the beginning, so... You come up and be <laughs> And then I got one other thing. This is only make my point. I could have like 73 things, right? What this is, is so we've got God creates Adam and Eve, but in the midst of this, He also creates all these things, right? That gifts to us, work, nature, money, sex. And oh, by the way, pleasure. Who wants to be pleasure? Oh, I'm going to give that to my wife. She's pleasure. Okay. So, okay. Now, bear with me for a minute, all right? This is a story of creation. God, in the beginning, let there be light. Wow, all this stuff. He creates Adam and Eve, okay? In His image, okay? God created Adam and Eve in His image. And He did this amazing thing. He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Better said, you're stewards of all of creation. And so God gave Adam and Eve, and He made them unique. No other animal is like that. We're the only ones created in the image of God, and we're created in the image of God with dominion, as the Bible says. We get stewardship over all this stuff. Okay? So all of creation. And so there's definitely a problem in our world, and I'm going to get to that in a minute, but there's a problem in our world. But So Adam and Eve are to get their life from God... Adam and Eve, and you're to turn and you steward these things, right? You work well, you deal with nature, resources, sex, and pleasure, and all that kind of good stuff, okay? So life from God, you turn you steward creation. That's the way God set it up. Okay, everybody follow me on this? Okay? We're, we're not equal to the birds, okay? We are creating the image of God. We steward creation. We get life from God. But a funny thing happened in Genesis 3, and I won't explain it, I'll explain it all to you. But they did this, and they never turned back around. They didn't turn back around. They decided, why have God? We'll just be stewards of all this stuff. We'll take over. We can be judged. We can decide how everything works and how life is to function. We don't need God. We will be like God. Now, a serpent was involved and all these other things, but I'm just trying to get to a point of emphasis here. Now, they might have turned their back on God, but God doesn't technically go anywhere. But for a minute, I'm just going to kind of have you turn around to pretend that you're really not here for a second. So, but we know that you are, God, because you're everywhere. So, so, okay, so here's what's going on. Now I want you to note, note. I want you to note something. Now this is this is me just summarizing the Bible really fast for you. Okay. In essence, here's what happened. And this is going to tie to my idolatry statement. Okay, because you're like going, where is he going? Adam and Eve thought they were really big. They thought they could play God. They thought they could be the judge of it all and decide right from wrong, good from bad, um, dark from light. They could figure it all out themselves. 
And so they turn their back on God and decide they're going to steward things. But a funny thing happened in that garden that day that most of you and I don't realize until we humble ourselves and realize the truth is that this thing got inverted. This whole thing got inverted. So what we think is now we'll be Lord over creation and forget God, but something else happened. Instead, what happened is, I want you to switch the picture. What happened is this stuff became God. Pleasure became my God. How many can say that in their life? No kidding, I live for pleasure. Whether it's eating or it's sex or it's something. Could be sports. Can be marriage and sex. It can be money. It can be power. It can be nature. Nature takes over and has a power effect. Work. How many people, how many of your parents, how many of you have dads that you go, yep, that's their God? See, we thought that we were going to be God over all of creation, and what happened is it flipped on us. Funny thing here is, you want to know what religion is? I'm not talking about what following Jesus is. I'm talking about, you know what religion is? Come back in the picture, God. But now you're some uniquely shaped God in my image. And what Adam and Eve now do is because these things begin to have rain over their life, I can't control my pleasure. Work is wiping me out. I don't have enough money. Matter of fact, I'd like to have more money. So I'm going to create a religion where instead what I do is I'll just reach back for God when I want God to get me more money. A lot of us follow Jesus for the same reason. We're not following Jesus because Jesus is Lord. We're following Jesus so that he'll do something better for me in my life. Because really, something over here is our God. And so we want our God, our God to reign. We want to get married. So I'm going to turn back and get, get, get right with God. And if when all this stuff goes bad in our life, we turn our back on God because we think and we blame God because we say God didn't do something for us. When in reality, it's, it's our having our back and our idols are just falling apart because our idols will always fall apart. Our idols can't stand. Let's give our friends a hand. I will tell you that I did not bring Jesus in to the picture yet. But what Jesus Christ does and what we're going to hear more about from George in a bit when we celebrate the, the bread and the cup is we realize that what God did is he stepped into the mess. And he provided a means by which Adam and Eve could go from pointing in this direction to turn back around and to face the living God again and once again get life from God so that we can once again steward creation. Here's the deal. What's my point in all of this? Sex is powerful and God says, hold off. Because it will take control of your life and your relationship. It will take over. So what I want you to do is hold off so that you can get to a place where you steward it appropriately in your life. I will stand up here and say to you once again, as I joked about earlier, we are 23 years into our marriage. We have three teenage daughters. And we still enjoy not only the fact that we are business partners, we run a household and manage the life of kids, but we are romantically involved today. As much as we have ever been. Amen, brother. As much as we've ever been, and we say that not because we followed a bunch of rules, but because we learned by the mentors and leaders in our life that we cannot allow sex to become an idol in our relationship. It needs to be something that we don't suppress either, but something that we learn to steward in our relationship. And we're thankful that we have learned that in our life. Another thing that we learned is that though sex is powerful, it's not foundational. You can put up my quote. Um, though it's powerful, it's not foundational. And um, it occurred to me this week as we were thinking this through that romance cannot be the foundation of our life 
And sex cannot be the foundation of our romance. Um, Romance cannot be the foundation of our life. Sex cannot be the foundation of our romance. You can even take out romance and say singleness cannot be the foundation of our lives. Or any of those things that we saw up here. Work cannot be the foundation of our lives. Obviously, you heard us say that we clearly clearly believe that there's really nothing that's a sure foundation other than Jesus Christ in our lives. It can't be a lasting foundation. For me, as I've thought about this, I've thought building your relationship on sex is like building your dream home on the San Andreas Fault. It doesn't mean that it can't look beautiful. You can build a house on the San Andreas Fault that looks gorgeous, but there's disaster looming right beneath you, and you never know when you're going to be shaken and everything's going to crumble apart. And on a personal note, I can say that Mike and I have had one of those years this year where we sort of feel like we've been through an earthquake. Our life has been shaken this year in a way that we never really thought. And it has mainly to do with the health of our oldest daughter, who is already diabetic, and she was diagnosed last summer with a pretty serious illness. And in, um, I guess it was August, she underwent brain surgery twice. And during that time, Olivia and I and Mike, we spent more time going in and out of the doctor's offices and dealing with something that was pretty huge. And there were so many times we were so glad that we had a foundation other than just, you know, being sexually attracted to each other. That wouldn't have got us very far. On a lighter note, while we're in the doctor's offices, you know, I kind of, for the first time in my life, kind of got connected to some daytime TV shows. I don't know if any of you watch any daytime TV shows, but Olivia and I, you know, Ellen helped get us through some long days. And so one day, Olivia had a long test there, and and Mike wasn't there, so we turned on the Ellen DeGeneres show. And she was interviewing Steve Harvey, who has a radio show. He's an actor. He's a comedian. And this is what he had to say, and I think it really pertains to what we're talking to. Isn't that a great clip? Yeah. That kind of perked up the hospital a little bit that day for me. Um, Obviously, the point is not that we think you should have a 90-day rule. We already talked about sex being blessed in marriage. But I think Steve makes an awesome point, and the point is simply that sleeping with someone teaches you very little about them. Nothing that's really important. It doesn't tell you if they work hard, if they work well with others, if they do what they say they're going to do. It doesn't really show you anything other than whether they bathe. That's really basically the only thing that it teaches you. And, um, you know, as unromantic as it might sound, you know, Mike and I always, when we're doing pre-marriage counseling, we say, you learn a lot more about somebody by signing up for that Habitat for Humanity project they were talking about. Doing something that actually teaches you about the, the person that you're involved with. Just, you know, having these sexual interludes really don't teach you very much at all, especially anything that's lasting very long. And one thing I want to say about this clip is I know that it's a little bit stereotype. It's portraying the male as the sexual aggressor. And I've been around the block enough times to know that that's not always the case. I'm painfully aware of the fact that a lot of times in a lot of relationships, it's the woman pushing for sex. And I think we feel like that's very affirming to us to be desired. And we have a problem, and the best thing I can do is show you. This is our problem. This is the mixed messages we give to you men. This is what it is. You know? It's like, no, you're perverted, but yes, come on, baby. You know, it's kind of this mixed message that we send. And I know that um, we need to take responsibility for that, too, because it's not always on the guy's shoulders. Back to our story. Back to our story. 
we felt like having sex at an early age that we were very bonded together because sex is a very bonding thing. And it's intended to be that way. I mean, God designed it for the person you're going to spend your life with. So consequently, it can bond you to the wrong person. And we have found that it often camouflages real issues. Things can go along fine with sex as your so-called foundation, as long as everything's smooth sailing. But the minute any kind of turmoil enters your life, everything crumbles to the wayside. It's not a foundation. It can camouflage things for a while, but in the end, it clouds our judgment. And it's really tough because we've seen people have a really hard time get over relationships. Yeah, oftentimes when we see people realize that they shouldn't be together anymore, usually the question I ask is, were you sleeping together? And the answer is usually yes. It's very difficult to break the bond because the bond that God has given us in the sexual union is a bond that he's given us as a sign and the seal of the covenant relationship that a man and a woman made together for life. So when you, when, you, when you flip that and you create the bond before you create the commitment, the covenant with one another, it makes it very difficult at the end to break. When we were in this position in our own life, you know, when we were young, 19s, I mean, you know, Let's face it, she's hot. And just simply having a bunch of verses of scripture in my brain that said, God said don't do it, was not going to be enough. And as we worked through this, why, 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 I thought something came to me, okay? And I I grew up in a construction family, so I tend to either think construction or football. I mean, that's about the extent and depth of of my thinking a lot of times. And so... um, I thought we thought about construction, and this is the thing that, that that I feel like was kind of a word picture that God gave me that that I want that I want to share with with you as I was thinking about this, and that is that um, when a couple comes together, um, I believe that there's there's as you think about a house, there's first of all the foundation of the house, right? There's a foundation of a house. And, and if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, we know that the foundation is one thing and one thing only, and that is Jesus Christ. And so as Sherry and I began to grow in our relationship with God, it wasn't so much that we did God's stuff together. It was that Mike was rooted in his relationship with Jesus and Sherry was rooted in hers. But as we began to come together, we realized that there were things that we needed to work on, things that we needed to build in essence, which we'd call, so to speak, the framework. Okay, and the roof of the house. I want to put you put up the illustration right now that we have our little house. There's a little Becky Riggers added the little sun and the little clouds to give us a little feel. But here's the deal. I want you to notice something on here. When a couple gets together, what we're really working on, things that you guys would all go, oh, that's important for a relationship. Communication. Gotta have good communication. Sure. Cooperation. We got three teenage daughters. I mean, right there, two things, right? Okay, we're dealing with cooperation on a regular basis, conflict resolution. I know you'd probably think Sherry probably never gets mad. She's a redhead. We got to deal with conflict resolution. Contentment. Contentment is basically that statement that says, "I'm done looking." I mean, there's a, "I'm not done looking." There's, "Are we content in the relationship?" We're working with community, people involved with us in relationship. These things come together as what we call the framework of the house. And we like to say that the overarching pieces that play is our Christ-likeness as God develops in us, my own, uh, my own self uh, in the image of Christ, uh, the covenant that we share with one another, and as the scriptures say, love covers a multitude of sin. And so here we are, we're in a dating relationship. Okay? And we realize that what God wants us to work on is our foundation, And the framework of the house, because when the storms come and the winds blow against our relationship, it's the foundation and the frame of the house that's going to make it stand. Right. 
And I, and I can say that when we decided that we were going to stop having sex till we got married, the issues came to the surface, and we were able to work on all of those things that we needed to work on. And I told you last week, I really feel like without that making that decision and the time, the two and a half years we spent working on those things without sex being the centerpiece of our relationship, that we wouldn't have been married without making that decision. I'm convinced of that. Mm-hmm. But you know what, Mike? One question I have, and they're wondering the same thing, is where is sex on the little diagram? I, I didn't see it on there. Where is it? Well... Because it's in the relationship still. It's supposed to be somewhere in there. It should be in there. Okay, here's where my illustration gets really cheesy. Mm-hmm. It's the decorations in the house. So you don't see it on the outside, <laughs> hopefully. Um, <laughs> but sex becomes the decor. And the reason why we finish with this, with this illustration at this point is because what makes a house warm? The decorations. Mm-hmm. Right? Someone said a fire. Yeah, it's a fire. Fire, a fire, sure. (laughs) Yeah, the central air. Uh, No. It's the decor, okay? What makes it homey? What makes it, what makes it enjoyable? But here's the deal. This is the reason why I bring up this illustration. Is guess what? Over the course of time, the foundation and the framework never changes. But the decor changes quite often. And the reason why you cannot build your relationship upon the sexual piece of it is because it changes over time. It will look different at different seasons of your life. I love it when this 80-some-year-old couple was at one of our little conferences we did one time, and they were talking, and they talked about their great sex life. They're in their 80s. Their great sex life. And then when I thought, wow, gosh, they... Wow, they got some energy. They, they talked about the one time they made love that year. The one time. But a great sex life. Okay? Most of you are going to go, that, that, I guess in 80, that's okay, because it changes over time. You don't build your relationship between a man and woman on sex. Because if you do, it'll either turn into an idol or serve as a really bad foundation. You build it upon the right stuff and you'll spend the rest of your life enjoying the relationship that God has given you and being able to truly celebrate this incredible gift, this incredibly powerful gift that God has given you. Okay? Here's what we're going to do in uh, wrapping up. We want to encourage you to do a couple things. George uh, is going to come here in a, in a minute and, and, sir, and uh, 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 share with us the body and blood of, of Jesus. I want to let you know that this is a great opportunity. There are people in the back to pray with you if you would like somebody to pray with you. But here's the deal. Some of you need to smash the idols in your life. You have erected idols. It may be sex. maybe a lot of other things. But I realize that for some of you right now, this plays a major role in your life. For some of you, it's because you're actively involved, like Sherry and I were in the early part of our relationship. You're actively involved and you're saying, you know what, I want, to, I want to change and go in the right direction. Some of you may have experienced abuse in your life. And it might have a, a, a power over you. Um, I could not tell you the amount of people in the, in the 23 years I've been in ministry with college students, how many people have come to me and said, Mike, I've never told anybody this before. And then proceed to tell me how they were abused by somebody or they were raped. And you need to deal with that. Because that also sets itself up as an idol. Not a good idol. A bad idol in our lives. It has power over us that it ought not have. 
We need to deal with that kind of stuff. And so I encourage you to do that tonight, to turn away from allowing these things to control you and let God reinvert it and make Him in charge again. Let Him be the lead in our life instead of these things being the lead in our life. That's our encouragement. And the second thing is this, that as you move forward in the days and the weeks and the months ahead, don't let one talk just be here and, and out, your, out, out of your brain tomorrow. Let it get into your heart as you begin to work with the community in your life to create a plan, a building plan, that's God's and not yours. Let's bow in prayer. Thank you, Lord. May you take our words, not only from our head, but from our heart, and help to encourage others in this journey that you at the end of the day would be glorified.